difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. And Scott Tobias. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Ed Wood, Tim Burton's salute to the director of what are widely considered to be some of the worst movies ever made, starring Johnny Depp and Martin Landau. In this episode, we'll take a look at The Disaster Artist, James Franco's film about the making of The Room, which has found a cult following among those drawn to what can politely be described as its rough edges and odd choices. James Franco's brother, Dave Franco, plays Greg Sestero, a baby-faced San Francisco actor with dreams of Hollywood stardom who, in the late 1990s, meets Tommy Wiseau, played by James Franco, at an acting class. Tommy is, to say the least, an unusual man. He claims to be from New Orleans, but speaks in an impossible-to-pin-down accent that suggests Eastern Europe. He's coy about his age, drinks Red Bull by the case, and lives in a cluttered apartment. He also seems to be rich, which allows us to propose that he and Greg move to Los Angeles after they become scene partners and unlikely friends. And it's this wealth, also of undetermined origin, that allows him to suggest that when Hollywood seems not to want to make a movie with them, that they just make their own movie. And so they come to make The Room, a kind of overheated, contemporary, Tennessee Williams-inspired drama, <laughs> written, directed, starring, and financed by Tommy, who plays Johnny, a man torn apart by his <laughs> girlfriend Lisa's infidelity with Mark, played by Greg. Johnny also has a hard time throwing and catching a football and enjoys saying hi to doggies. Most of the film's second half involves the shooting of the film, a torturous process that goes way over schedule, finds Tommy clashing with his more experienced crew and beleaguered actors as he struggles to complete even the simplest scene. But in the end, he does complete it and screens it. And the response of the audience is not what Tommy anticipates. Was it worth it? That's a question that's kind of left dangling by the end of the movie, which does little to unravel the vagaries of Tommy's history, but ends up revealing a little bit of his soul anyway. You know, we both have this dream. Yeah, I guess we do. That <laughs> <laughs> we'll be famous. We'll show them. Watch out, here we come. To be or not to be. It's not going to happen for you. Not in a million years. What after that? This town, Greg. They don't want me. Wish we could just make our own movie. That great idea. So there's this guy, Johnny, a true American hero, to be played by me. He has it all. Good luck, many friends. And also, maybe Johnny is vampire. We'll see. This set of the alleyway looks exactly like the real alleyway. That's right. Well, why don't we just shoot in the real alleyway? Because it's a real Hollywood movie. No? Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Action. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. What the f- it doesn't work if you're looking at the camera. And then this beautiful... Girl, anything for my princess. She betrayed him. And then this guy Johnny. He go crazy. <laughs> Nobody respect my vision. You are a villain. I did this whole movie for you, Greg. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. Why are you cut, Sandy? This is great. This is real acting. If you're going to ride around with the dress, maybe do it before you shoot yourself in the head and blow your brains out. I disagree. You're really going to make this thing? We are going to die. Together. 
All right, everyone. What did you think of the Disaster Artist? Well, a few of us watched this together, so we kind of yeah. know. But uh, I, I, I heard you laughing. I saw you laughing. He's pointing to. to <laughs> uh, well, what about Tasha? Tasha was. Yeah, Tasha was Tasha. We don't know what she Yeah, Tasha, you weren't there. I was in a remote location. There is a part of me that suspects that this is not that great a film that the (laughs) messages are really broad that the characters are really cartoony that the whole structure of it is really phony and the ending in particular is is made up and ridiculous and over the top i really loved this movie (laughs) i i laughed so hard i I just really enjoyed it I, i kind of enjoyed the cheesiness of it but for the most part, it's just, I, I think just watching James Franco wander around in character as Tommy Wiseau for like 90 minutes is value enough for this movie. Yeah, this is this movie is for me just all about the characters and the performances and the chemistry. Like, I, I don't want to quite say it, it's an ensemble film because it's so much about the Francos, but it does kind of have a little bit of that feeling of like, the Apatow gang comedy, you know, mm-hmm. a- about it, but there's something more to it that I, I also really love this film while sharing your suspicions, Tasha, that maybe I- I'm just like falling under a spell that is uh, relieving me of all my critical faculties. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I-, I did really like it a lot. Yeah, I don't think it's a particularly great piece of filmmaking. I don't watch it in thirst for other films directed by James Franco, for example. And I do think the film, I wouldn't say struggles because I enjoy it the entire way, but I think it doesn't really kick into high gear until the actual filmmaking starts. Mm. Um, That to me is when the film becomes something uh, really fun. And then, and then of course, when you get to the part where they're actually showing scenes of the film and even the closing credits, I mean, that stuff is all hilarious um i have kind of a long history with the room myself part of that history is like reading this book which i love have any of you read this book no No, i've got it it on order yeah i've I've downloaded the audiobook because i've heard that the audiobook is so good uh sistero narrates it and apparently does an amazing wisso impression (laughs) oh wow oh i may have to i may have to change that, that sounds like a good way to encounter it punches way above its weight i think maybe because uh, tom bissell who is a <laughs> maybe sorry what? i'm drawing shade at uh, sistero's presumed writing abilities yeah right well, i think i think i think almost certainly because his writing partner sistero's writing partner is tom bissell who's an actual writer a really yeah. great writer he wrote uh, the short story on which uh, uh the loneliest planet that movie the loneliest planet oh, is based yeah. um in any he case he also wrote this uh d- like the definitive treatment of the room for harper's which is why he was selected for this book. okay yeah it's just with, you mean the what, definitive with... treatment of the room after scott's oh that's true <laughs> i did write i did write an entry on the room for new cult canon right when it was finding its legs as a cult item it, and sister didn't call you up what was he thinking I, I it's know. almost like he he attaches himself to weird untalented hacks instead of <laughs> the the sterling uh, journalistic people he should be uh attaching himself to whatever the case I mean, I, i'm just gonna say i'm gonna say that the, the book belongs on a shelf with final cut the book about heaven's gate and then uh bonfire the vanities i mean I think it's that good it's really great and i think this is a fine uh, adaptation of, of that book though not again not done with a, a tremendous amount of pizzazz i think the verisimilitude that you really appreciate that makes the film shine has to do with the performances and then of course the footage that they actually did shoot 
which in the closing credits is it's a brag, but it's a wonderful brag yeah. uh, because the because they get every gesture so perfectly right. You know, I don't actually want to undersell the film's comic timing, which is a big part of it. I, I mean, for me, the the impressions really, as much as performances, are are startling. But it's also just it's a really funny movie, and part of that does come in the scripting and in the quickness of the comic movements. But Keith, you haven't talked. Everything you're saying, I'm agreeing with. It's just it's just so much fun to watch, and I'm not sure there's a scene better than the scene that was leaked before it Mm -hmm. came out which it's the one where they're doing take after take of tommy walking on the roof not knowing where to look not knowing his line you know on the one level it's sort of a pretty obvious gag on the other hand it's just so exquisitely done and frankly it's just immersion in this character like i mean a lot of some of it's makeup but so much of it's just like he just gets if you've seen the room or seen Wiseau interview this is this is tommy Wiseau. It's, it's really remarkable and the only time i really even know it's james franco there's a couple of shots of his smile and he has this, mm-hmm. sort of this unmistakable like toothy grin his whole um, face crinkles yeah yeah but otherwise he's just this very odd man from the beginning to end. Well, there's also the point where he comes out naked and he's not mm-hmm. made entirely out of bristle. True, true. I, I seriously, though, I like I think of, of Franco as being like a fairly skinny dude. And I had to go back and, and watch that scene again. I, I don't know if he's wearing a full body prosthetic or what, but he somehow ended up with what Wiseau's like thick, weirdly muscular body. I think he did this weird thing called exercise I've heard about. It's just, <laughs> I mean, I've heard of transforming yourself for a role and I've heard of bulking yourself up to play Thor, for instance, but bulking yourself up to play Tommy Wiseau? What kind of career move is that? I mean, in this very specific case, a very good one. Um, I submit the theory that is, because because I agree that I did find the, the parts where they were actually filming the room to be the most fun elements of the film, but we are also all very familiar with Tommy Wiseau and what a weirdo he is going into this. I think if you did not have that knowledge and were being introduced to Tommy with this movie, it would be even better. Like, I think that you would really enjoy getting to puzzle over this strange character. For us, I think it's a lot of like just we're, we're waiting to get to the specific weird thing that we already yeah. know about Tommy rather than being surprised by those weird things about him. I question that because I I feel like if I hadn't seen The Room beforehand, I would think that this was exaggerated. I would specifically think that the character was oh with his his strange accent and his strange behavior mm-hmm. like that it all had to be fake and i've i've seen a couple of responses online from people who who were like this must be overblown this must be over the top and then they get to the the sequence at the end where tommy wiseau actually shows up and makes a cameo and mm-hmm. they're like oh my god that is what he's like but this is something i would love to hear from uh listeners on i probably nobody listening to this podcast is not familiar enough with the room to recognize that aspect of the disaster artist. But if if somehow you've made it this far and actually saw the disaster artist without seeing the room or Wiseau first, I would I would love to hear whether you thought it was too over the top until proved otherwise. Yeah, you, you are a unicorn. We want to hear from you. Yeah, you, you can't make Wiseau up such a weird combination of elements like why that hair what what is that accent <laughs> what about the belts what, what the, yeah what is all the missing words like hey how wh- whatever's going on with him he's been in the states for a while why mm-hmm. does he why does he talk, why does he talk that way <laughs> roll to my class are simple work hard shop on time try not fall asleep everybody and question for a start it sounds like you're doing 
Am I hearing an accent? Uh, no, no. What would you mean? Because I'm hearing a kind of Eastern European accent. No, that's, um, that's from New Orleans. Where? What? New Orleans, you heard, you know. Where? That'd be easy. Oh, New Orleans. I thought, <laughs> I didn't know what you okay, were saying. Okay, yeah. Okay, well. can we just try to lose the accent? Take it again. The rules to the club are still work hard, hard time. Try not to fall And the question for was dark. Um, I think that about does her. One thing, though, I will say, though, if even if you have seen the room and maybe and have not read the disaster art, is is there are specific aspects of this production that are surprising and delightful to discover. Uh, one of my favorites being that he purchased all of the equipment, <laughs> which is unnecessary and even stranger, decided to shoot the film simultaneously on film and on digital, uh, which, of course, re- require totally different lighting schemes. And then, you know, doing all these uh, bizarre green screen scenes when they, they could have just shot on location. I mean, it's a very subtle thing, but but the scene you're talking about that was previewed of him coming out of the onto the rooftop and trying to get that line out. That shot is is taken from his apartment in San Francisco, right? No, no, in Los Angeles, right? They could have just shot on location and would have had the Los Angeles backdrop. And then, of course, there's an alley scene that they that starts the shooting where it's like, why don't we? There's an alley right behind us. Why don't we go shoot out there? And it's like, no. It's a Hollywood movie. Yeah. I will say, if you've seen The Room, it's even better, though, because the fact that when they go off on that rooftop, you realize it's exactly like the rooftop in, in the movie, which is very which is very much a fake rooftop. Mm-hmm. The way they keep dwelling on uh, Lisa's mother's cancer diagnosis, like, we don't come back to that? <laughs> and it's like, uh, if you haven't seen The Room, that's certainly an odd thing to know, but but knowing that this is very much a prominent detail of the film makes it all the, all the more amusing. There are times when that aspect of it feels a little overplayed to me. The, the whole business of uh, the two of them coming into the equipment rental shop run by Jason Manzukas and Hannibal Buress <laughs> randomly. It, I mean, in that moment, it feels like they don't know what they're doing and they just kind of randomly throw out, uh, sure, we'll buy the equipment. Yeah, we'll shoot on 35 and video. And nobody ever bothers to correct them. It's presented as something that literally could have happened because they bluffed the wrong thing at the wrong time and nobody ever said anything about it ever again. And I find that really hard to believe. And it's one of many things in this movie that I think plays perfectly well as comedy, but kind of makes me question everything about the movie as as far as accuracy goes. Because as, as an actual part of the story, it's hard to make that make sense. But I, I think it works because the movie so consistently portrays Tommy as someone who will not listen mm-hmm. to anyone and is only concerned with the way that he envisions things going. That suggests that no matter whether anyone said anything, and people do say things, and he does does not heed them. So I think it's just, I think it works because of that character. It's human nature. <laughs> One thing that I think the film gets right is what makes The Room, to me, such a magical experience and something, a movie that I've returned to many times which is two aspects of was a one is that he is a, a child mm-hmm. <laughs> he is he, he reacts to the world with the innocence and the petulance uh and the emotions of of someone who is just not mature <laughs> that's one aspect of it and two and this is this is part of what makes a lot of bad films really bad films interesting is that it's almost like filmmaking as a second language like he's an alien presence who is just trying to guess 
at how other human beings behave and not getting it. He just doesn't get it right. You know, the football being the most yeah. obvious example, but but really just human behavior is something that is an utter mystery to him. And, and you can see plainly in the film that he just that he just doesn't get it. There's just a fundamental disconnect. And you see that in other kind of so bad it, it's good movies too, like Troll 2, which was a Italian production made in Utah, uh, uh, <laughs> or Birdemic is another one, which with with, uh, with I think a Vietnamese director right. working in America, and it's like you know filmmaking is a second language or some massive degree of miscommunication that just is all naked and raw and apparent to us on screen and makes it kind of delightful and strange. Yeah, there is a degree to which he does feel like he has read he, somewhere along the line. He read a paragraph that says, "Human beings laugh by going ha ha ha." Yeah. <laughs> Human nature is to react in sometimes in strange ways, strange and unpredictable emotional ways to things. <laughs> well, we never see him in the film have a relationship with anyone really, except for Greg, mm-hmm. and his idea of how humans interact is is very off but there is kind of this you know low simmering misogyny in the film and you know it's a funny portrayal but also in, in franco's depiction of tommy like he's not on board with greg having a girlfriend played played by allison brie in this movie it's unclear it's it never really suggested that he has any sort of romantic designs on greg but he's definitely wants to be i it's yeah <laughs> I think there's a, a pretty strong it's never, sort of homoeroticism. It's never it. overt, you know. Even and, when he asks if he wants to sleep in the bedroom with him. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> yeah, well, it's ambiguous. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But even when he tries him, to mimic sex with a woman and doesn't seem to have any idea about the anatomy of it, he, he wants to have Greg to himself, and and. Uh, women in general do not seem to be particularly appealing uh, to him. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a degree to which people aren't that appealing to him, except sort of as reflections for his own ego. Like, he doesn't necessarily understand. There's a current of loneliness to him that, to, to a small degree, mirrors kind of the current of loneliness that you see in Martin Landau's Bella Lugosi in Ed Wood. There's that sense of needing someone. But at the same time, it's... Not clear what he needs other people for, except once again to satisfy this vision that he has of of friendship. Like he's read a book about friendship. He has to have a friend because it's an American thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think the disaster artist engages it that much. But like one of the things, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying, Scott, about the sort of alien quality. It's just like Tommy's naked desire to be seen as American, whatever he (laughs) thinks American is, you know, or like the all-American boy. And, you know, like we do see that a little bit in the roles he is going out for and, you know, presenting himself as the all-American leading man and the guy who can play football. And can we just talk about the football (laughs) real quick because obviously that is a very famous part of the room and we get to see it realized as it's in the film but we also get an earlier scene that that scene in the room is supposedly based on of Greg and Tommy throwing a football around in San Francisco and like I think it's such a treat for fans of the room who are familiar with this scene that is in that movie to kind of see it like amplified in this earlier version where Tommy like has even less idea of how to do this thing that he like (laughs) is convinced that he knows how to do because it's all American and he's an all American. And hero is the thing he wants to be. He doesn't want to be, everyone wants to cast him as a villain because of his presence and his accent and his kind of mysterious and hostile. His Lugosi-esque. Well, that's for connections. But I think there's like a thing where, where, 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a treat to see them go onto the onto the roof in Los Angeles, and you recognize that location, or to see them go to the park and throw the ball around because that also appears in the film, and it, and it kind of feeds into the idea that the room is just an extremely personal film that he's putting his life on screen in a fairly direct way, and um, and that's part of what makes the film resonant and special. And I think you get that too in in that. Uh, the, the speculation that they have on set that, you know, somebody really must have broken <laughs> Tommy's heart. I think that's probably true as well, though, though we don't know from either from the disaster artist book or film specifically who that person is or what exactly happened. But um, but the film confronts that in a way that we can only understand as being personal. We should talk about the last scene, uh, the premiere of the film, which kind of goes to, I think, kind of the history of the room's reception. Kind of squeezes mm-hmm. all into one yeah. one scene where uh, the audience isn't sure what to make of it. And then it kind of turns into a, a laugh riot for those in attendance. And then Tommy has to kind of sort through his feelings and attempt to cover it up by saying it was sort of a black comedy that he intended all along, <laughs> which is what he will say when asked about the room. How'd that play for everybody? I mean, it's, it's funny. I almost felt like it was a little too neat, but what did everyone else think? I thought it was too neat. I thought mm-hmm. it was too neat and corny and just really extreme. It also reminded me so much of the producers and the, the process that the audience goes through with Springtime for Hitler. But I, to me, it was just too much. It was like... I I understand how you need to put a button on all of this and you don't have time to stretch out the process of of how this movie became a cult hit. But as you say, I I think they just pack way too much into that sequence and then they stretch it out way, way, way too long. The process of people coming to laughter over it, like the producers shows you exactly how to do that with perfect comic timing. For me, the the process and the disaster artist just took too long. Yeah, agree. And I, I think it feels even more on the nose when combined with the opening scene, which has a bunch of celebrities talking about the room and the reception yeah, and, and basically like uh, kind of already filled in that that knowledge. So the final scene is just sort of like playing it out within the narrative, which, as I understand it, is not from the Disaster Artist book, like that the book cuts off before the, the premiere. So that is like the one part of this movie that is most fully imagined, independent of the source material. And it's the part and, that doesn't work. And it's the part that doesn't work. And it's the part that isn't true. I mean, I, yeah, no like I, there's no way that ha- it happened the way well, it happened. I mean, I read an interview with uh, with one of the actresses from the film, and she she openly says it was nothing like that. It that yeah. she said that half the audience walked out within the first five minutes and that there were definitely people laughing, but not necessarily in a, a friendly or an enjoying it kind of, kind of way. Um, and that it wasn't a packed house and yeah. obviously didn't give that speech. Like a lot of those details are just made up for the film and made up for that film in a way that feels pretty artificial. That's something that movies do is to compress things. I mean, this feels like, you know, taking months worth of development of, of an audience and how the cult sort of developed certain habits and lines and it became like this Rocky Horror mm-hmm. situation. And like the, like the one example that felt really false to me is at the end of the movie when he is riling around and he gets the gun and everyone starts, starts shouting, do it do it i mean that's something that happens when you see it as a midnight movie but i just it seems to me that that would have taken a long time to develop as a as a conceit i think they would naturally not want to be insulting to tommy yeah either. knowing yeah. that he's he's there yeah, and, and that the his premiere. whole cast is there right it's and it's right it's a friendlier audience or ostensibly friendlier audience than total strangers who are just there to kind of laugh at the movie and these are people who have some personal investment in what what's happening i i, I think it's probably 
it's certainly fair to say that they would be laughing at the movie. It is impossible to watch and not <laughs> find. I mean, I, and literally, and I, I remember like I saw it for, first on DVD. That's I didn't see it in the theater, and I think I, I yeah, think I, I remember watch calling it together at the. Do we watch it for the first the, time together? I think at, I, I watched it by myself. Maybe the and second then I, time, but you I think I brought it. you all in just to see the double. Uh, graphics uh, in the opening, <laughs> the, like the two <laughs> cheesy computer graphics that, that, that I, have, have, I for, have two production w- logos, to, for, for which the film. disaster artist like makes note of. It does, yeah. which it, I like. Good for it, it's and I think, I think that's immediately something that you th- that you can find funny about the movie. I mean, it is immediately a funny experience. The very first time I watched the room by myself on DVD. I yucked it up like crazy. I think it played great. I mean, with I don't think I would have made it through it if I'd watched it that way. My my first experience with the room was at a midnight showing at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago <laughs> with a packed crowd who threw spoons mm-hmm. and like we knew what to expect, but like I don't know the the point where a bunch of people like ran up front and they're they're talking to Tommy and he looks like he's looking down at them and talking to them mm. and they've like they've got their perfect comic timing down to how to interact with the screen it's like watching people who've done rocky horror for years mm-hmm. the script is so established at this point i mean it was a pretty perfect way of encountering the film for the first time it felt like you know, when somebody who really loves a movie sits you down and says, you have to watch this yeah. and lets you watch it and then talks to you about it afterwards. It was like that, except it was happening in real time <laughs> with a bunch of fans who knew the film. And it just it felt like a really friendly experience. Yeah. And I was a little over the room. I felt like sort of the, the fandom kind of uh, uh, got a little overwhelmingly mm-hmm. huge a few years ago. And this kind of brought back a lot of warm feelings. But I think I would probably never go see the room again now just because I think this is going to bring in a lot of new fans that perhaps won't respect the traditions of, uh, <laughs> of the of the room elders like Scott Tobias. Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I think those people will be dominant voices just as they are in Rocky Horror. I think one thing you could say is in the room experience, there is a, a very uncomfortable and vocal level of misogyny that yeah. it is part of the audience participation that I don't like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me super uncomfortable to be, be around even in that first screening. Uh, though I will say, God, my very favorite audience participation thing in the room is uh, there are a couple of weird shots of the Golden Gate Bridge. Go, where, go, yes, go, go, Yes, where go. everyone says, go, 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 and it doesn't make it, it does, the camera doesn't make it across the bridge <laughs> the first time, and then, and so people are always, uh, you know, Aww. are all upset, and then when it finally makes it, it's just such a, an extraordinary triumph, and there's all these cheers in the audience. It's just, like, like that kind of audience participation I really like, but all the all of the hostility directed toward the Juliet Danielle character, yeah. I can do without. Uh, Vince Mancini, who writes for Uproxx, track down Juliet Danielle for for an email interview and she's a great sport about the whole thing but she says that element is a bummer and it's like the old like kind of like what I was saying that the old fans are awesome new people discover the movie and and like feel the need to comment on her body on social media and it's just kind of a constant bummer for her yeah that's gross and unenjoyable I find it interesting <laughs> <laughs> what it's just I, a really good segue good segue Tasha <laughs> I find it interesting that the disaster artist itself glosses over some aspects of that like we get to see Tommy being super unpleasant to the actress during the sex scene but we kind of remove the whole part of the narrative where he originally had a different actress in the role and he didn't like how the sex scene worked out and he called somebody else in to do it and there's like a whole aspect to that that's kind of 
played out in some circles, like some circles think of the whole shooting process as him just trying to get with a series of women, him basically using a, a casting bed as a casting couch. There's a lot of unpleasantness to that. And instead, what, what we get in The Disaster Artist is the actress urging him on, trying to talk everybody else down from defending her, saying that she's all right, that everything is going fine. And it, it became a really weird mechanic, especially in the environment we're in right now, mm-hmm. watching somebody be so unprofessional and unpleasant to a woman and having her tell an entire room of people and seemingly meaning it. It's okay. You don't need to defend me. You don't need to be upset on my behalf. Given the the huge gap between the actual history with the film there and what we see on screen, I just found that a weird series of choices, especially in a comedy. I mean, I think it is what it is. I, I I was happy that that scene was there, and that we and that we got to see Tommy at his worst, and that we and that we got to see that reaction from from her too. Because I mean, there is something I think productively discomforting about the reaction that she has of of it's okay, I'm fine, etc. Maybe she's not fine, but maybe that's her way of getting of getting through a moment like that. She's, I mean, she's trying to be a pro. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the and she wants it. She probably wants it over with, and she doesn't want a lot of attention paid. It is in its own way realistic to how women are trained to respond in uncomfortable circumstances. It just plays in a very strange way, I think. Did you not see it similar to the to the Meyerowitz stories a bit in the way it's responded with, with the guys who are angry and wanting to kick his ass or whatever and, mm-hmm. and her having a, having a co- contrasting reaction to that? No, not at all because in, in that sequence she's able to come along safely after it's all over and give her commentary on it and she's not physically involved. It's not like she gets physically abused in that scene or she's implicated in it in some way. She sees what they've done and tells them what she thinks of it um, but we're not actually seeing her discomfited in it. Well, we want to keep talking about the disaster artist, but we should probably go back and bring in Ed Wood as part of that process. So we'll be right back after the break with Connections. You finished? It's my masterpiece. Greatest drama since the Tennessee William. The room. The room. Nobody ready yet. So today, you'll be first one. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, you want me to read it right now? Yeah, what's this thing? Okay. The room. I'll do anything for my girl. You should marry Johnny. Did you know that chocolate is the symbol of love? We can't do this anymore. I keep thinking about your strong hands around my body. Anyway, how is your sex life? I don't think she's faithful to me. Life gets complicated. The unexpected happens. In a few minutes, bitch. A lot of people love each other. The world will be a better place to live. Done. Oh. Well, what you think? I mean, it's great. That's... I just, I can't, I can't believe it, man. You, you did this. You... And of course, you play Mark. But you want, you want me to play Mark in, in this? Nice big role. Second lead. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a huge role. Are you, are you sure? You... Oh, you don't want to do it? Fine. Maybe Johnny Depp available. No, no, no. I, I want it. I, I want the role. I, I'll take it. It's like you say, Hollywood reject us, then we do it on our own. Wait, you, you have the money to make this? I have. It's no problem. You're really going to make this thing? No, Greg. We are going to do it. 
Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I mean, we can start with the obvious, bad movies, why we watch them and, and how they're made. I think one of the most interesting things to me in contrast in these two movies is that, again, as I say, I, I feel like that Tor Johnson scene where Ed Wood watches him crash into the set and the set wobble and is like, cut, print, it's perfect. <laughs> it's okay that he crashes into the set because that is something that this man would have to deal with every day because of his size. <laughs> <laughs> it parallels so neatly with Tommy Wiseau's reacting to Mark's, I knew a woman who got beaten so badly she ended up in the hospital. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> and, how, and how he's told by his script supervisor over and over, that's not a good reaction. And he's like, it's human nature. Both of them have this weird idea of how they're, they think they're reflecting humanity in their film. But I think in both cases, what we're seeing is just this crucial lack of attention to like to detail and to how the cinematic language works. And, and maybe it was having just seen The Disaster Artist made me read that scene that way, Genevieve, mm-hmm. instead of the way you saw it. Yeah. But I think in both cases, we just get this sort of idea of this is why these two guys make really bad films is because their instincts are just 180 degrees wrong. One question I wanted to ask the group, because this is something that comes up often in discussions of The Room and other other So Bad It's Good entertainment, is do you feel bad about it? Do you feel about, bad about participating in it and about, bad about laughing at someone's creation? Is there, is there a mean-spiritedness to it that gives you a little bit of pause? So I have a long history just watching bad movies. It's something that I used to do a lot with my friends in high school, especially we've sought out bad movies. And so, you know, I'm guilty as charged in terms of making fun of them. Uh, I also found my tolerance for just wasting my time watching bad movies has dimmed over the years as well. But I think the ones that really stand out are the ones that have, like we've talked about, have a character all their own. And you feel like you are at least sharing the spirit of these eccentric outsider artists as much as you're making fun of them. You know, they're, they're coming about this art form through very, uh, you know, different angles, but they have a unique take on things, and, and you can kind of appreciate that, even if it's not technically accomplished. I don't want to, like, bend over backwards, because some of it is just watching the incompetence on screen. But, you know, if there wasn't something to celebrate there, if there wasn't some kind of, like, spirit or flair all its own, it would be something different. It's not like you're making fun of a bad student film. That is just, you know, it's kicking a puppy I, I like doing that too. Uh, <laughs> no, I, there was there was a particular thesis film I encountered uh, when I was at the University of Miami that that we would watch over, over again because it used uh, the Batman score and the James Bond score as as a temp track that was never changed. Oh my god, it was well, so great! But you, but I know you're you a being. bad person. I'm a bad person. Yeah, I, I remember I, I judged the sh- student short film contest and it's like, did everybody break up with their girlfriend before they made these? <laughs> Well, you know, making a film is a time-consuming endeavor that leaves one with not a lot of time for one's girlfriend. So so what about you all? A bad movie remorse? Do you feel it? Not a whole lot because I think like a fundamental aspect of art is like once you release it into the world, it is no longer fully yours. Mm. It, it belongs in some part to the people who consume it. You know, not all artists would agree with that. But as a consumer of art, that is that is my feeling. Um, I do think there is an element in terms of these two movies specifically where you have to take the creator into account. And I don't feel bad laughing at the room at all because of Wizzo and how he has conducted himself regarding this movie and the extent to which he has just kind of capitalized on the reaction to it and made it work for him. Yeah. So. 
fine you know like that i i don't feel bad about the room i'm not well versed at all in edward's films so i you know i can't really speak to that but i might feel a little differently about it knowing how his story ended yeah for me it just comes down to like how much do i know about the story behind the film Mm. and what they were trying to do and the like the people involved because knowing almost any of the story about how a piece of art was created like activates my empathy gland (laughs) once once you know that somebody was trying to do something that they didn't achieve it becomes very hard for me to get around that the thing for me is i've never been that much of a fan of bad movies and the the bad movie watching experience it can be fun with a good group of people and enough booze but (laughs) it was never something that i sought out when i was younger and like i've had some really really good experiences with terrible movies we watched the apple at your house didn't we 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 did (laughs) did have have a bad movie night (laughs) i think also that some of my enthusiasm for bad movies has filtered through mystery science Theater 3000 Mm -hmm. which is far more entertaining than watching any other movies they watch on their own that's a that's a brilliant show Mm -hmm. for me the apple aside because we did have people over to watch the apple and that is a tremendous tremendous bad movie but for the most part i find that the best experiences are the unplanned ones one of my best movie going experiences ever was watching the clash of the titans remake in the theater (laughs) with a bunch of friends so drunk i could barely sit up and we weren't planning for it i was not planning to get that drunk turn into tasha's confession hour (laughs) it's not a confession if you don't feel guilty about it i wasn't planning for the movie to be that bad i wasn't planning to get that drunk it just happened and that's where the spontaneity came in it's not good but i think the drunkenness might have exaggerated just how bad it is oh it's that's a whole nother conversation my point is i know nothing about the people who made that movie Uh, I know nothing about what they were trying to achieve. I know nothing about how they feel about that movie flopping to the degree that it did. So I don't have to feel guilty. I would feel guilty seriously enjoying the badness of an Ed Wood movie. I mean, and the thing about Wizzo, though, is like, I think he was sort of forced to steer into the curve. It had to have been painful for him. And the film reckons with this a little bit to experience a bunch of people laughing at what for him was a very serious and personal film. It just it had to. And I think he just found his way out by saying, hey, hope you enjoyed my comedy uh, that I totally intended for for you all to laugh and and enjoy. And I I just think that probably wasn't his initial reaction. I think he probably had to adjust. and, And I think he's done a perfectly fine job of of embracing that culture and having a good time with it and making his money back which is a lot which you know he dug quite a hole for himself financially to make it i mean we don't know how much money he has it could have just been a a, a drop in the bucket that that account bottomless pit yeah i think that's why i found that final scene so artificial is i would have liked to have seen some of the process of him Mm -hmm. coming to that realization because as you say i think there was more to it than that and it ends up making him feel very facile. There's so much compression happening mm. at that at It that also moment. makes him seem more savvy than he is. So to like come <laughs> yeah. to that conclusion immediately, you know, that's a self-awareness and savvy that we have not seen was so uh, display <laughs> up to that point. No. I think it's interesting that the corresponding scene in Ed Wood, we don't get to see him getting any of that reaction. Like he, he sits down to it and he says, this is the one I'm going to be remembered for. But we we don't get to see him watching them laugh at his movie and him like trying to figure out what to do with that. No, like it's a he, triumph. he goes out on a triumphant note 
I have this whole theory about movies that end at the last good moment. Uh, Welcome to the dollhouse, that kind of thing, where you go out on a high moment, if only because you cut in the middle of a scene and possibly the next second is miserable. And that's what that feels like here. I mean, Edward's life after that was very unhappy and full of uh, tragedy and mishaps. And that was a high note. What's not in these films is just a whole nother, sadder, weirder story the filmmakers have chosen for for sound reasons not to include. I think there's sort of a parallel here then, Scott, and I'm curious what you have to say about this. Between watching a bad movie and laughing at it and wondering whether we should feel empathy with the filmmakers and feel guilty for enjoying the movie as a bad experience, and watching something like Ed Wood, which turns a complicated, tragic filmmaker story into something like relatively neat and pat to illustrate a series of points that a filmmaker has. Should we feel bad about a biopic, basically, that is shaped like a comedy and is about expressing the things that Tim Burton always expresses? Is that disrespectful to the subject? In terms of just not missing who he was and what his essence is or something like that? If it's disrespectful to watch a bad movie and laugh at it, it seems like it would be disrespectful to watch Ed Wood and be entertained by this tragic life that's being recast for us as a not tragic life. I think it's just a choice Tim Burton and company made of just framing the film as they did. And and I'm perfectly happy with that choice of, you know, ending on this triumphant note as they do. What was really heartwarming and satisfying about the ending of Ed Wood is is the troop of, of just all of them coming together sitting down as a group with their families being really excited and having the you know the film that Ed Wood is feels he'll be remembered by uh, you know unspool in front of the audience like a proper premiere and you really get a sense of triumph and esprit de corps and closeness you know and warmth uh, that is maybe common to a lot of filmmakers when they have reached that point in the filmmaking process where they've just it's so painful and difficult to put a production together and to make a movie and there's so many ups and downs but at the end of it you get this premiere where they're all this little family that has come together to have this experience and then of course they it breaks up after that yeah it's kind of another connection between the two films and is in the disaster artist that, that family kind of forms without tommy it's mm-hmm. kind of like this, these people bonding of the shared experience of like this sort of difficult process of making this film and i think if this the last scene played a little differently you can kind of see it as sort of a tremendous relief that they you know they've bonded together to make this movie and they're kind of rejecting it en masse in spite of Tommy but I think it's a meaner film if you do it that way I mean because of Tommy I, I mean none of them like him right uh, except, well, except, ex- except for Sestero and yeah. Sestero ha- even Sestero has to be cajoled he has no plans to go to the premiere and, and no. has to be you know personally cajoled by Wizzo to come back into the fold and so I, I think there's definitely a interesting contrast between how the troop that makes the, the room reacts to their director uh, and then how the troop in, uh, that made Plan 9 reacts to uh, Ed Wood with so much more it affection. Just, each time, just getting the gang back together to make another movie with Ed Wood. Mm. Yeah. I would like to use this opportunity to maybe talk about those troops a little bit. Sure. And, you know, we these are both movies with big casts and, you know, with a lot of kind of memorable characters and performances, so... Man, seeing Jeffrey Jones again after what happened to Jeffrey Jones was a weird mm. experience. Oh, I didn't even think of that. I completely forgot. Yeah. I mean, Ed Wood opens on him yeah. talking directly to the camera. And I had a moment of, I don't want you to talk to me, Jeffrey Jones. <laughs> yeah. 
that was that was sort of a, a weird recall moment because it's been a while since we've seen him because of the the scandal that overtook his life. But there was a point in the eighties and nineties where he was like relatively ubiquitous. Yeah. So seeing him again like brought up a lot of weird memories. But there's a lot of famous faces in the troupe in a Disaster Artist to a point where we were introduced to his crew. <laughs> It's just I was sitting there like bursting into laughter at every new person we were introduced to. <laughs> I love Seth Rogen and the Disaster Artist. He's so great. He, he yeah, is, that character Sandy Schler, who is a Hollywood veteran who was script supervisor on the room, and by all accounts is the only reason it made it to a final <laughs> film. I mean, it's very much the Greek chorus commenting on this is so insane, but it's a really tricky balancing act. He manages of like scorn and affection that comes through the kind of throughout the movie but especially in that final scene. He's someone who actually knows how movies are made and mm. realizes how far off this is from that. Yeah, and But is like kind of in it for the ride. Sure. <laughs> Which he was not in real life. I, that was yeah. one of the things I ran across just like researching the, the real room story. He walked off the set to go work on another film. Yeah. He, uh, he, did a, he did an interview with EW where he said, I could spend my day shooting Tommy's naked ass or go work with a DP with two Oscars. <laughs> so yeah, he just he just he quit and uh, went to work on another film. But I find it fascinating that you enjoy Seth Rogen so much because he you just, just hate him so much, Tasha. Uh, I just here's the thing: I have a knee jerk response to actors once actors get to a certain point, and I feel like they're being lazy and phon- phoning it in. Seth Rogen in this movie is Seth Rogen in his last twenty seven movies mm-hmm. is Seth Rogen in real life. But I think yeah, it but, works for this character. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I actually think it usually works. I like Seth Rogen, but I think there's an interesting thing going on in this where it's not even an overtly comedic character, but he's a funny person. It's kind of like in the, the Steven Soderbergh film, The Informant, which is not an overtly comic film in a lot of ways, but it's filled with comic actors. There's kind of the same thing here where it's just sort of like naturally funny people put in this absurd situation of it, not really overplaying the comedy, but there's some sort of just sort of comic resonance just by having them around. You kind of get that with Bill Murray's character yeah. and, and Ed Wood, too. Like, mm. I mean, that's it's actually kind of a sad character. I think it's kind of like <laughs> the vision of Bill Murray performances to come. It's the first time mm. we really saw oh, the, those yeah. shades of Bill Murray. Yeah, It was good to see Josh Hutcherson in this in this movie too as, as Denny good old, good little honey crisp and, and the Zac Efron reveal moment at the end of the disaster artist yeah. I thought was a, a real hoot. did you did you some of the people in our little screening uh, did not recognize him as Chris R I didn't, I I didn't, didn't not, I did not know. You did not recognize that as Zac Efron. That yeah. was really funny. Zac but. Efron chameleon. <laughs> One critical connection I think between Ed Wood and the disaster artist is the idea of the two filmmakers as as outsiders as, of people who have been rejected by the by the system and by Hollywood and then having to find other means by which through which to make their own movies uh, for Tommy it, it it's becomes completely DIY because he has all of this money and for mm-hmm. Ed Wood he has to you know con <laughs> this Baptist church into funding his his movie which will of course be this popular genre that's going to earn them enough money to make the religious films that they want to make. And I I love all that stuff when they're when they're getting baptized and going through all that rigmarole but but that, that's a, a pretty critical element of both films is just is casting those two as outsiders in the hollywood system as going beyond the gatekeepers and both films finding actual inspiration in that too like authentic inspiration in filmmakers who have the courage and the audacity to not go through the system and to do things on their own it's interesting that we see two filmmakers with processes that are so different 
yet equally inept, <laughs> you, you know, in, in their own ways. And like, I, I, I think the biggest contrast that is also very telling between these two films is the extent to which we see the financing happening in Ed Wood, whereas in The Disaster Artist in the room, it was Tommy has is an endless font of money, you know, <laughs> and each of those circumstances lends to a terrible movie in its own way. In Ed Wood's case, because he has to like make these stupid compromises that he does because that's the kind of filmmaker he is. And he doesn't really apparently care that much that, you know, his leading man has to be someone who's never acted before. And Tommy can just indulge in his ineptitude because he doesn't have anyone answer to. So like it results in the same caliber of product, but from two very different circumstances. For me, what's interesting about the filmmaking process in these two movies is that because there is a certain like inescapable like regimentation to how films work and because just of the personalities involved, we get all of these little like rhyming sequences between the two films that are completely unintended that are just natural parallels. In both movies, we get the sequence of the screenwriter dropping his script on somebody Mm -hmm. and saying, you've got to read this right now. I'm going to sit here and watch you. In both cases, we get the rallying cry for the troops that is, we're about to make this movie. Here's the big speech that's going to get you all revved up. And in both cases, it's a, a comic slow ride up the roller coaster because we know what the, the ride down the roller coaster is going to be like. Mm-hmm. In both cases, we have a scene where a temperamental actor has a complete ego meltdown and has to be like slowly coaxed back and told over and over that they're fantastic and wonderful and that everybody loves them and just kind of like petted back down from that like bristly cat kind of feel. In both cases, we have something going wrong on set and the director not noticing and and saying that it's okay. And then in both cases, of course, we have the big triumphant screening at the end. There's just this this feeling that that I got like midway through Ed Wood. It's like, I just watched this film. (laughs) There's so many beats that are the same beat. I think what you're saying, Tasha, is that we, we pair these movies very well. Um, we're really kind of a pairing of four movies, two bad ones, two good ones, all worth talking about. Disaster Artist is currently in theaters. Ed Wood films have kind of gotten a little hard to track down in their, in their original format. There's some DVDs out there. Uh, there's some colorized versions, which I, I hate colorization, you know, and, and, and you're going to lose like what these films actually look like if you do that. But, you know, I don't know, turn on the color on your TV or something. Um, <laughs> and The Room is widely available on DVD and I think some streaming services. Is it no, it's nowhere available? on streaming. No, no interesting. I, no, I, yeah. as, as of fairly recently, it was so was still distributing it himself. Mm-hmm. You can definitely get a copy of a DVD, especially like used and stuff on Amazon. Mm-hmm. But, and may as well buy it. You're not. You're going to want to watch it more than once. But also, there are screenings <laughs> everywhere right now, especially yeah. if you're in a big city. Though. Yeah, if you're in a big city, yeah. you should definitely make. I it mean, if you're screen. in a big city, there's a really good chance that Sestero Sestero's touring behind yeah. it right now. Tommy Wiseau shows up for the music box ones so on many, a pretty yeah. regular basis. Like, who knows who you're going to see at the room? We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment. Your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. 
Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? I'm just going to call out a, a few things that I read on my ramp up to this podcast. Sort of a bunch of short hits. I read a lot of stuff about The Room. I wish I could have read the book, but I didn't have time. There's an article in EW from 2011 that gets into Sandy Schler and his experiences on The Room. <laughs> Among other things, they have this uh, snippet of dialogue Schler reported uh, between him and Wiseau. Do you want me to direct your project? No, I am director. Yeah, you're the director, whatever. You want me to direct your movie for you? Yes, please. That's what he (laughs) says the exchange was between him and Wiseau. So it gets a bunch into a bunch of uh, Schler's impressions about how the film went. There's a lot of interesting info in there. There's a slight article called What's Fact and What's Fiction in the Disaster Artist that is where I got the the business about Schler (laughs) not wanting to spend his day shooting Tommy's naked ass. And that's actually a really detailed article with a lot of interesting stuff. Marissa Martinelli wrote that. And it's just kind of a breakdown of where the film played fast and loose with reality and where it's remarkably accurate as anybody who stays through the credits the closing credits of the disaster artist knows like they did pay an immense amount of attention to the detail and the rhythms and the pacings of the film and how to reproduce it as well as possible but of course they made a lot of changes for timing and comedy and just functionality and this article gets into it in some really interesting and detailed ways um finally funnier die is doing a series right now uh directed by one of the room's actors and it's called the room actors where are they now (laughs) it's six of the actors from the room kind of doing like the the where are they now thing i guess um but it's it's immensely tongue-in-cheek and over the top and it it features them kind of examining some of the the biggest in jokes about the room not in any way in a serious way like the writer director robin paris who played michelle in the room um there's a whole (laughs) sequence where they're talking to her about how she doesn't actually like scotchka all that much. Uh, her preferred drink of choice is burbequila. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty broad humor along that line. There's a whole sequence with Catherine Minot, who plays Carolyn, talking about how she doesn't have breast cancer, but she definitely has fill in the blank. Mm. I definitely have shingles. I definitely have <laughs> hemorrhoids and on and on and on so it really digs into a bunch of running jokes about the room it's very much for room fans but it's also just sort of interesting to see like these six people who were united by this bizarre experience doing a different thing together making fun of that bizarre experience and as broad and silly as it does get it makes you feel kind of, again, like you're in the club, like you're watching these people hang out together and have a good time doing something new. Um, that series is in progress. They've only posted the first one. There's going to be a series of them. Uh, but it's called The Room Actors, Where Are They Now? And it's available for free on Funny or Die. Genevieve, what's good for you? Well, mine is not uh, directly related to any of the films we're talking about, but it does share kind of, I think, the same fun, go-for-broke spirit as A Disaster Artist, which is a new film called I, Tanya from director Hmm. Craig Gillespie, starring Margot Robbie as embattled Olympic figure skater Tanya Harding. (laughs) This is a narrative film that takes the form of a documentary, or at least nods at that form, uh, through recreations by actors of what the film calls wildly contradictory, totally true interviews with Harding and others, including Sebastian Stan as her ex-boyfriend with a name made for late-night comedy monologues, Jeff Galuli, 
and Allison Janney in an incredible performance as Harding's domineering slash abusive mother. The story is designed as a reevaluation of a scandal, in this case the assault on Nancy Kerrigan by an associate of Galuli's at the 1994 Nationals, and the subsequent national fascination with Kerrigan and Harding's quote-unquote feud at the Winter Olympics. Uh, And it does eventually land at a place that more or less absolves Harding of wrongdoing in that scandal without letting her entirely off the hook for her behavior. Uh, But this, to me, is most successful as a character study of this extraordinary athlete who was self-proclaimed white trash, trying to excel in an image-centric sport that clearly wanted nothing to do with her. I, Tanya, is all about the chip on Harding's shoulder and how it helps shape the narrative around her. But there are a lot of other super compelling threads to the story that screenwriter Stephen Rogers does a really good job weaving together. Uh, it's also just really fun filmmaking with an interesting structure that's full of fourth wall breaking, smart use of special effects in the skating sequences, and a soundtrack that borders on oppressive but absolutely fits the film's go-for-broke aesthetic. Uh, critics love this film. I love this film. I think it's a really good time in the movies that you can and should head to the theater for. It's out now. I, Tanya. I dug that one, too. I mean, there are a few things that stand out about it for me. One is that it's kind of conceived the Tanya Harding story as sort of a Coen Brothers dimwit caper yep, kind of for sure. so it's got that aspect to it I think that the skating sequences are, are weirdly overachieving yeah <laughs> they're amazingly well done like way way beyond what the film actually it, needed to do and then, and then the other thing I liked about it as well is I, as I, th- I feel like it's a good take on her you know not only just this this incident with Nancy Kerrigan and, and, and all the things leading up to it but also on the sport itself and what the sport values, mm-hmm. which isn't really athleticism. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was a, something that she brought to the sport. You know, her ability to pull off the, was it triple, triple axel? Triple first um, woman to land it in competition. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's, that's real, real athleticism. And however that was packaged was something that was controversial and, and made her in, sort of ostracized from that world, but probably shouldn't have. And I'm gl- I was happy to see the film make the case for that. Keith, what about you? Yeah, this is a really easy one. Um, I've, well, I've been watching a lot of movies lately, but they're all kind of end-of-the-year award season stuff that we'll either be talking about or you'll be hearing about um, ad nauseum. Itania was actually going to be uh, one possible choice for me. <laughs> uh, I like that movie a lot, too. But I'm going to recommend something very relevant to your interest if you enjoyed this podcast, which is just in general, the You Must Remember This podcast by Karina Longworth, which is terrific, and it's each uh, a bunch of episodes dedicated to Hollywood history. I, I mean... I imagine the overlap between our listenership and their listenership is pretty heavy. If you like movies, that's a great podcast. But specifically, they just did a series called Bela and Boris, which is a history of Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and their careers and the ways their rivalry and the way their careers over overlapped. Uh, the whole thing's great. Uh, Patton Oswalt does the voice of Boris Karloff. Taryn Killam does the voice of uh, Bela Lugosi. And there's a lot of great Hollywood history there. And there's one episode that is basically about the relationship between uh, Bela Lugosi and Ed Wood. And it's uh, it's quite good. Um, it, it confirms a lot of the details uh, that you see in the film, Ed Wood, and gives you more details and some sadder details, possibly, than you want to know about about that relationship. But yeah, highly recommend it. Cue that up after this if you haven't listened to it already. Scott, how about you? I wanted to recommend a lovely little documentary called Quest. Quest is a documentary about an African-American family in a neighborhood in North Philadelphia. They're the Rainey family, Christopher Rainey, uh, Christina Rainey, and their 13-year-old daughter, PJ. And uh, what's interesting about it, this is a four-year project by Jonathan Olszewski. Uh, and he committed to this project, and about 20 minutes into the documentary, PJ gets shot by a stray bullet. It's, uh, it hits, hits her, she loses 
sight in her left eye and has to wear a prosthetic for there for the rest of her life. And the thing, what's so remarkable about the incident is that the documentary would have existed without it. The commitment to make the film was already in place, and this was just something that happened in the flow of their lives, which is just so shocking, and it's such a statement about the prevalence of in the in the danger of violence in the in the neighborhood in which they live. Uh, so there's as- that aspect, but there's also just this incredible attention to domestic detail. The, the film's goal is just to show how this family operates, who these people are, what the relationship is. I mean, the one small hook that it has is that Christopher Rainey runs this studio out of his basement in which he features a lot of young hip-hop artists, and he has Freestyle Fridays and this sort of thing. And so, th- so that that's a kind of a subplot that plays out, but it's really just about a family, you know, just an ordinary working class black family. And it's just a beautifully articulated vision of what their lives are like over the course of this four years. The four years quite pointedly is bookended by the reelection of Barack Obama and the election of Donald Trump Hmm. uh, and how that does and does not figure into the uh, lives of the rainy. So, a lovely little movie that's rolling out in a very small way in big cities now, but will surely resurface on, on streaming services when it finally gets to video. But worth checking out. It's called Quest. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out December 26th and 28th. Scott, what are we discussing? Ah, somewhere in Italy. <laughs> Riding bikes over cobblestone day trips to the Mediterranean, wine, apricots, gelato, and, in the case of Call Me By Your Name and the Talent of Mr. Ripley, bronzed bodies and forbidden passions. With Call Me By Your Name appearing near or at the top of many top ten lists, we wanted to take a closer look at Luca Guadagnino's sun-dappled coming-of-age story about a 17-year-old who takes a romantic interest in the handsome American doctoral student that comes to stay with his family for the summer. We picked up on many similarities to Anthony Minghella's The Town of Mr. Ripley, which turns a Patricia Highsmith novel about an American imposter in Italy into a tragic thriller about suppressed gay desire. With the weather turning cold, I think it's a good time for a European vacation. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Ed Wood, The Disaster Artist, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? You can find me on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work at the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, Vulture, uh, Variety. Uh, I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope Laboratory's Musings blog. Genevieve? You can find me at the culture section at Vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? You can find me as the film and TV editor, both editing and writing about film and TV at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find me writing about books at NPR Books occasionally, including on the 2017 Book Concierge, the huge project where we try to sum up all of the year's best books. Keith? You can find me at uprocks.com, where I'm the editorial director of film and television. You can find me on Twitter at kfip 3000 You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. 
And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Dan, the man, Jakes, for his assistance producing the podcast. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Pull the strings. You are my rose.